Well, top of the morning to y'all. <laughs> well, we, uh, we got in last night from our trip to Ireland. And um, I'll tell you what, we, we stayed in a, a town most of the time. For those of you who don't know, um, we were able to teach a class for Moody Bible Institute um, on a study abroad program uh, where the students are touring the UK and then we got to go to Ireland, Elizabeth for four weeks and me for a little under three. And um, so we teach the class but we also get to see Ireland. And then we get involved in the local church and I'll tell you this, we have nothing on the Irish for starting late because... <laughs> They start church, nobody's there. And then it just slowly, slowly fills up. And by sermon time, there's a, there's a full room of, of people. But uh, they're very laid back people. Uh, in the bulletin, if it's supposed to start at 10, it's like 10-ish. They'll put 10-ish because uh, they're drinking their, their tea and they need to, to take their time. But I'm glad to be back in America. Um, so in addition to going to Ireland, we were able to go on a whirlwind tour of Germany with two Moody professors who are students of the Reformation and World War II. Okay? Um, in fact, not a great picture. Here, here, here's Dr. Quiggle. Um, he is the, really the foremost uh, expert on D.L. Moody. He's a historian and the expert on D.L. Moody. This is uh, Mike McDuffie, Dr. McDuffie, and his expertise is theology of the contemporary church. So, well, okay, now, does anybody know where they are sitting here? That's Luther's house. Um, that is, that's not the Wittenberg door, okay? That's the house uh, to his, or the door to his home. And Katie Luther, who used to be a nun, but then Martin married this nun, Katie, they lived here, they had children, they had students. It's an old monastery. And she had these little benches built, um, and that's where she and Martin would talk uh, in the evening. Okay, so it was very appropriate for these two to sit here. Um, and there we are in Wittenberg at a restaurant called the Wittenberger. <laughs> yeah, and it was like the best hamburger you could possibly uh, eat. Now, um, so we got signed up to teach this class in Ireland, and Dr. Quiggle just says, how would you like to do a tour of Germany? We're like, sure. With who? Just us two and these two experts on Germany. And how it happened, I, I don't know, but we had a private tour of Nuremberg, Dachau, Wittenberg, Berlin, and learned all the history and I, I purposely this time did not prepare a sermon before I left. Usually when I leave, I prepare a sermon, so when I come back, I, I just 
was open to, Lord, what would you have me share? And I'm glad I didn't because I want to share what we learned. Okay. Now, I also want to tie it in to 1 Peter. Okay, so Caleb took us through verse 12 of chapter 3. Um, I want to continue and tie this together. So Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, that's kind of like in the book of Proverbs. There are general principles. If you are zealous to do good, who's going to harm you? Generally, people who do good are, are going to uh, be free of harm, but, but that is not always true. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So, uh, general principle, you're good. You do good to people, you're going to get along. But, remember Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Um, here, Peter, in essence, is repeating that beatitude. Um, there will be occasions when you are persecuted. Now, let me pause here. Persecution will come for the righteous, and there's a promise of blessing, but it's for being persecuted for righteousness' sake, not obnoxiousness' sake. Okay? Um, how many Christians are just painfully obnoxious, overly aggressive, lacking in the fruit of the Spirit? They leave behind them everywhere they go a trail of not only offended unbelievers, but believers. And they look behind them and they go, oh, well, there it is. Um, I offended them. They offended me. Blessed are the persecuted. No, let's make sure that if we're persecuted, it's not for obnoxiousness sake, but it's for righteousness sake. And, and the idea here, it has more to do with our behavior than what comes out of our mouth. But now Peter does get into what comes out of our mouth. It says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to tell you now how to deal with challenges that come from the unbeliever. Number one, have Christ set apart in your heart. All right, get your, He's your Lord. It's not uh, about you being liked. It's about setting Christ apart. Okay? So, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now that word defense, apologia, it's a Greek word um, from which we get the term apologetics. Now, um, apologetics is really a whole branch of theology of of defending the truth of Christianity. Some translations say um, to, to give an answer. Be prepared to give an answer. Um, there's, there's a little bit more of an idea of, but, but give, give an answer with, with some solid backup to it here. 
So Peter says we should live such different lives that, that people are going to ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So um, this is the key verse for apologetics. Studying enough to not only live the truth, but then engage people with the truth, defend the truth. But now, there's a whole spectrum of people who say, I love apologetics. I love learning those arguments to, to uh, beat those non-Christians into submission. And Peter, who probably is one of those guys, says, but do it this way. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, so here we're back to, to the make sure it's not obnoxiousness that you're being persecuted for. Have an answer. Have a defense. But when you're defending the truth of Christianity, respect people. Be gentle. You really don't browbeat people into Christianity. I know God can use anybody. He can, but, but here, your marching orders are to, to know enough to defend the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. And then he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Hopefully you can walk away from the conversation saying, I did it with a good, clean conscience. Lord, I, I, I really tried to honor you, and, and I, I can walk away with a good, clean conscience. Okay, So, all that to say, I'm going to zero in on that word um, defense or ap apologetics, apologia, apologia, um, and maybe we'll pause on there for a couple weeks and learn some more apologetics. But what I want to do is combine verse 15 with kind of a reflection on what I've learned from two places in Germany, uh, from Dachau and uh, Nuremberg. All right? And we'll tie this into apologetics because my first point and my last point can be used apologetically to defend the truth of Christianity. Okay? So it's kind of a let's preach the, the text, let's illustrate apologetics, and you get to go on vacation with us. All right? You ready? So now, i got to warn you, it's, um, it's going to be kind of intense. I'm not going to show you any dead bodies. There were plenty of pictures of dead bodies. Um, but it, it's, it's going to have, have us deal with let's call it an elephant on the earth, an elephant in the room. There's a, there's a thing called the Holocaust that took place, not in the Middle Ages, but 70, 80 years ago. Not in uncivilized area, but in Germany, a Christian nation. So what can we learn? Well, let's first go to Dachau, and um, the last, was it the last day we were in Germany, we, we visited Dachau, 
And um, what's, what is Dachau? Well, let me, let me read this. The Dachau camp was the first labor camp built. Now, there's a difference between a labor camp uh, and a killing camp. Um, it was part of a system of more than 850 ghettos, concentration camps, forced labor camps, and extermination camps that the Nazis established during the 12 years Adolf Hitler was in power. There were 20 main concentration camps, many of which had many sub-camps. So uh, until I went on this, I always thought there was, you know, Auschwitz and maybe three or four other... Uh, no, there was a whole system of camps that had sub-camps. Like this one had 83 sub-camps. So... Dachau was the first. Now, it was not uh, an extermination camp. It was considered to be a labor camp. Right? Um, what's the difference? Well, in an extermination camp, the trains would go in, and within a short period of time, they were put in the showers, the gas was turned on, they were killed, and the bodies were... The, the purpose was to exterminate you. Labor camps, on the other hand, pretty much the purpose was to work you to death. Okay? So uh, here's the idea. This is actually a picture of people leaving or marching from Dachau to another work site. Okay? So they went to these different work sites and different camps, um, but they were all over Germany and the surrounding nations that they, they occupied. Um, just a uh, basic picture of the prisoners standing perfectly still. Talk about that in a second. Um, there were gas chambers in Dachau, but they were never used, okay? Because they died through being overworked and starved. They did have workable ovens. Um, that were constantly being used. In fact, they couldn't keep up. So when the Allies freed the prisoners at Dachau, there was a pile of 3,000 dead bodies waiting to be burned. Okay? I didn't see the ovens or the gas chamber, but you did, right? Um, so, this is a picture of the actual, or, yeah, actual ovens. Um, this is a bench that they used to beat prisoners. Uh, for any infraction, they could hold you down and um, beat you. And they, they, you read the little stories next to it, and it says that they would make the prisoners, let, let's say they sentenced them to 50 lashes, they were to count out loud, and if they mispronounced a number or passed out and forgot the number, they, they would say, we're going to start again. All right. Then there's a thing called the pole, where um, they would tie the prisoners' hands behind their backs and hang them from a pole. One of the prisoners did this famous drawing 
of the pole. Of course, the shoulders became dislocated and the ligaments torn. Um, and they would hang you on the pole for an hour if you uh, spilled a drop of, of coffee on the, on the floor. It, uh, the purpose was to torture, to kill, to humiliate the prisoners. Um, then every morning and every night was roll call where you were counted if somebody was missing because they died or tried to escape, they would make the prisoners stand for hours perfectly still. Right? So, um, what do we learn from Dachau? And this is an apologetic here. Objective evil exists. Okay? Nobody can walk through Dachau without concluding this was evil. You put all the, the concentration camps together, six million Jews, another five to six million others exterminated and brutally exterminated. So you, you walk through and you go, this is evil. This is objective evil. But... Point two, now, now let's just talk about belief in God versus be belief that there is no God, atheism. Here's the second point. Without God, there is no objective basis for good or evil. Think about it. There's only two possibilities. Either there's a God who created us, who has standards, or there was an uncaused explosion and atoms formed, and then those atoms formed molecules, and over time they turned into people. If the second is true, There's no morality. There's no objective right or wrong. Now, don't misunderstand, because I've listened to lots of debates between Christians and atheists, and they say, so what you're trying to say is an, that atheism will always lead to Nazism. No, that, that's a, that is a slippery slope argument. There are plenty of atheists who, who uh, don't fall into Nazism. Okay, This is also not an accusation that all atheists are this evil. Here's the argument. Even atheists are appalled at how evil this is. But if there's really no God, there's no objective basis to be appalled. How does matter colliding, creating this or producing it? There's no right or wrong. In fact, the theory is survival of the fittest. You could argue Hitler was simply using eugenics to advance the logic of atheistic evolution. 
survival of the fittest, get rid of those who are weighing down the advancement of the super race, the genetically inferior. Given the assumptions of atheism and evolution, what's wrong with, with this? It's just advancing humanity to the next highest form. Now, again, the argument is not that atheists will all be evil. Most are appalled. The argument is, what's your basis for being appalled at molecules forming Dachau? Okay? So the, the third thing is, we are appalled. We are appalled. Therefore, and here's, here's the conclusion, the existence of God better explains the reality that we live in and know to be true. Right? The existence of God better explains objective standards by which we are appalled by the evil. But if there's no God, there's no objective standard. We have no basis for being appalled. Now, I know the objection, well, if there's a God, why would he have allowed this to happen? Okay? And we're not, we're not even going to get into that. But the, the, that's called the problem of evil. The problem of evil itself assumes there is evil, which assumes there must be God who gave us the standard of right and wrong. So let me give you um, uh, another illustration, same kind of concept. Uh, there's, there's different kinds of apologetics. There's, there's um, evidential apologetics, which is, let me just give you facts, facts, facts. But the problem is the, the atheist reinterprets those facts according to his worldview. Okay? Um, then there's what's called presuppositional apologetics, which says, wait a minute. Let's examine your foundations upon which you are standing. And this is an argument saying you're standing on a foundation that doesn't allow you to be appalled at evil. The reality we live in is better explained by the existence of God. So Tim Keller, and I don't know if you can see this in the back, but there's a book called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. It's different than uh, Reason for God. Um, and he talks about neuroscientist Paul Kalanthi. Uh, I'm going to just say Kalanthi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, had been an ironclad atheist. His primary charge against Christianity was its failure on empirical grounds. Surely, enlightened reason offered a more coherent cosmos. So, the enlightened scientific materialistic view of the world is a better explanation for the world we live in. Okay? Then he got sick and he started to evaluate life. What's the purpose of life? Uh, why am I here? What is, what is, is there really love? What about art? What about beauty? 
Um, and, and he started to realize that his worldview of a materialistic world couldn't account for these intangible things. So uh, Keller goes on to write, science can explain love and meaning as chemical responses in your brain that helped your ancestors survive. But if we assert, which virtually everyone does, that love, meaning, and morals do not merely feel real, but actually are so, science cannot, cannot support that. So he concluded, and this is the doctor writing, scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspect, aspects of human life, including hope, love, beauty, honor, suffering, and virtue. While Catalana realized that there was no scientific proof for the reality of meaning and virtue, things he was sure existed, it made him rethink his whole view of life. If the premise of secularism led to conclusions he knew were not true, namely that love, meaning, and morals are illusions, then it was time to change his premise. Isn't it it interesting that atheists who believe there's nothing but the material world can go to a movie about love and be touched? It's just chemicals. It's not real if there is no God. But he came to the realization, no, love is real. Beauty is real. Morals are real. Okay? So he said, I've got to change my worldview. He found it no longer unreasonable to believe in God. He came to a belief not only in God, but also in the central values of Christianity. Sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. So do you, you, you get the concept here? The concept is we know there's more than just material. There is love. There is beauty. There is right. There is wrong. If you, if you disagree, go to Dachau and take a tour. Those things don't exist if it's just a material world. There must be a God. Okay? So, um, as horrible as a trip to Dachau is, you can't come out without concluding that's an evil place. Therefore, God. Okay? Let me, um, let me now talk about a second thing. And I think we're going we're gonna to shorten the sermon from four points to just two points. You like that? Okay. All right. We could just have one point and be done. No, one more, one more, okay. So, um, Martin Niemöller. Uh, Most Christians are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Okay, so uh, Bonhoeffer was uh, a German pastor who was imprisoned and executed for resisting the Third Reich. Okay, Eric Metaxas... Uh, wrote the, uh, the most recent biography on Bonhoeffer. Um, and <laughs> interesting, Metaxas also wrote a, wrote a new book on Luther. 
So he's a German guy too. By the way, he's speaking at Judson College pretty soon for free. So if you guys want to go to that, I would like to go hear uh, Metaxas speak. Okay? But you can't read about Bonhoeffer without reading about his friend Martin Niemöller. Okay? Now, Martin Niemöller was a Lutheran pastor who, and by the way, he, he was a soldier in World War I. Um, then he became a pastor. And when Hitler started to rise in 1933, Niemöller was excited about Hitler. Okay? So um, a lot of people were. A lot of people were excited about Hitler because the concentration camps and the plan to take over the world was, was not laid out. All right? So uh, Germany had been devastated after World War I and there were huge fines placed on them and Hitler said, we're going we're gonna to rebuild this place and we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to put up with, with this and we're going to get the economy thriving and uh, Niemöller was a nationalist. He was for Germany. He was excited about Hitler. But suddenly Hitler started pushing what's known as the Aryan Paragraph. Uh, the, basically the Aryan Paragraph said um, Jews are to be excluded from the healthcare system, from government jobs, and eventually different guilds and, and uh, different unions said no Jews allowed, and then no, no Jewish converts to Christianity can be pastors. So, Niemöller resisted. In 1936, he signed a petition with some other Protestant pastors that criticized the policies and declared the Aryan paragraph as incompatible with the virtue of Christian charity. And then he became part of what is known as the Confessing Church. The state church, most of them basically uh, went along with Hitler. Others like he and Bonhoeffer said, no, this is, we, can't, we can't do this. And he found himself arrested, then released, then arrested, and he spent seven years in concentration camps, most of the time in Dachau, in cell 30. Um, that's my camera taking a picture of cell 30. And that's his cell. Now, uh, the pastors lived in horrible conditions, but they were treated better than most of the other soldiers. So he survived. His friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on the other hand, was killed. So when Niemöller gets released, he writes a poem. And he's most famous for this poem. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. 
Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So, now this is difficult because the last sermon I preached here, I preached on 1 Peter 2.17, which says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And some people might say, well, what, what is it? Is it honor the emperor or speak out? And my answer to that is, why are those mutually exclusive? Honor the emperor doesn't mean go along with everything and shut your mouth and fall in line and march. Okay? And speaking out doesn't mean you dishonor people. I think it has far more to do with how you say things than anything else. King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And we need the wisdom from God to know when that time is and when that time isn't. Okay. But related to this, Erwin uh, Lutzer, pastor, former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, wrote a book called Hitler's Cross. And in it, Lutzer interviews a German who lived, a German Christian who lived uh, during the time of the Holocaust. And let me close with this. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. Because what could we do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance, and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly and soon we heard them no more. And then the eyewitness shared with Pastor Lutzer, although years have passed, I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me, forgive all of us who have called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor, and there's a time for everything. Time to be silent, and a time to speak. All right, let's pray.
Lord, we've covered some pretty heavy things, but very real things. And we've seen the reality of what just a belief in you or a rejection of you can lead to. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us the wisdom to know when to speak, how to speak, what to speak, with whom to speak, when to be silent, when to speak. And Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind, it may not even be a big political issue, but it may just be a person we know or a a family situation we know where you are calling us to do something. So Lord, work in our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that because of the cross, we're forgiven for our past obnoxiousness and our past cowardice. And because of the cross, we do not need to fear death. And because of the cross, Lord, we have a message to share with others. And may we do it in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.